so good to worship together this morning. Um, just a couple of things as we, a couple, uh, yesterday morning, had about a couple dozen ladies in um, the fellowship hall in the kitchen, uh, having breakfast together, having a time of fellowship, but also putting together some meals that um, can go in our freezers. And so really good time just hearing reports of that. How many ladies here were on um, Team Shepherd Pie? Team Shepherd Pie. Okay, how many people? Yeah, there we go. How many people were on Team Enchiladas? All right, great. And then how many were Team Soup? Team Soup. We have a, a lot of enthusiasm from what I heard about Team Soup. So um, anyway, so good. Here's the, here's the deal. We have a freezer in our kitchen. We make these meals. These ladies put together these meals. Each meal has a card on top of it. Each meal gets prayed over. That for Because we anticipate that there are going to be needs in our congregation, whether it's a time, uh, a person or a family that is just maybe recovering from illness or something, some kind of crisis, something's going on, just one extra meal. If you know of anyone like that, you don't need my permission, you don't need anybody's permission, you go to that freezer and you grab one of those things and you take it to them, okay? That's what it's there for. It's an open freezer. If you need one, if you're in a situation where, look, I don't know, like, go to the freezer. It's there. You've been prayed for. Like, don't be shy. This is what it's for. And if you do, all we ask is, like, if you take one to somebody, just let us know. Let Jim Hill know who leads our Compassion and Care Ministry. Let Marianna Adams know who oversees kind of the, the, uh, the, the food and, the, and, and being a help in that area. Or let me know so we can celebrate, that we can celebrate that the body is caring for not only our body, but also anyone in the community. These are not just our meals, everybody. These are the Lord's meals, and they go to whoever the Lord loves, and that's everybody. So just a, a little reminder of that. That's one of the ministries that we have at our church, and so thank you, ladies, for doing that. And I know, and also this week, like, one of the things about doing that together, and I think if you talk to any of the ladies, like, just working together in meal prep, there's something about that, like, that the Lord is present in that and there's a special connection. And so even this week as you're maybe in your kitchen making meals or at your barbecue or whatever, grab somebody and bring them along in that journey of food prep and just see what the Lord brings up, what kind of conversation that is. So our ladies are leading the charge on that and that was awesome. So we're so thankful. If you have your Bible, let's open up. I actually want to open up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And this summer, we are actually, we're in Colossians because we're taking the advice of the book of Ephesians. When we were going through the book of Ephesians, we hit this one verse. We hit this one verse. And Emma, put it up on the, on the screen. We hit this one verse. It was in Ephesians chapter 5, in, beginning in verse 19. And it talks about addressing one another. First of all, it talks about earlier about being filled with the Spirit. How are you filled with the Spirit? You're filled with the Spirit by addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been taking this verse this summer to heart by saying we're going to spend some time in the psalms. And we've heard some great messages in the psalms. We heard about, and, and the psalms are this really interesting thing because they're, they're available for every occasion. No matter, no matter whether you are high or low or somewhere in between, you can find where you're at in your life emotionally or spiritually. That's in the Psalms. Like if you, are, if you feel like, where the heck is God? The psalmist has been there. 
right? And there's a psalm for every occasion. If you feel like the Lord is right present with me, the psalmist has been there. And so the psalms kind of give us this space to call out to God and to put our life to speech before him. And we heard a great message on Psalm 51. We heard about Psalm 46. Last week, Ryan was here about Psalm 56. So a great time with that. Now, but this verse doesn't just talk about psalms. It also talks about hymns, and spiritual songs. And what we want to do today is we are going to be taking a look at what would be called a hymn. What the author of this, Paul, would have been talking about hymns. Even though it's in our Psalms series, it, we're, this is going to be a hymn. And so Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is what most scholars look at as what we would call a hymn. Psalms, these Old Testament Psalms are for every occasion. But when the Apostle Paul writes, speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, probably what he's referring to when he talks about hymns is something that is Jesus-centric, so something that centers on Jesus as Messiah, but also that focuses on some kind of attribute of his, of his being or his life or his ministry. And so probably the most familiar hymn we have of Jesus, and we've gone over it a number of times, our, uh, is um, Philippians chapter 2, which talks about being in the very nature of God. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself. He became in the form of a, ser- a human, a servant, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is all in kind of a, a rhythmic, hymnic uh, uh, composition in the book of Philippians. And then, it, then he gets vindicated that he's raised up by God, and this we would understand that churches, these early churches, would have used these kind of hymns to teach about who Jesus is, to give um, attributes about what he has done in his life, about who he is. And so that Philippians 2 passage, which talks about the self-emptying love of Jesus, as well as the vindication of Jesus, that's, that's written to, or that's actually used by a church that had a little problem with maybe self-emptying, right? Now in this case, there's a number of other hymns that you might find uh, Revelation has a number of hymns, like Revelation 5. Uh, if that hymn was titled something, it would be t- titled Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll, for he has ransomed his people, right? That you have these, these short, little, hymnic, rhythmic compositions that help the church and that help the church to understand who Jesus is. And so what we have today in Colossians is a hymn. And what we want to do is we want to use this, we want to look at the, not, just the, not the whole book of Colossians, but just how this works in Colossians. And Colossians would have been a, a, a letter that was written to a group of people that was experiencing, okay, we've heard about Jesus, but we've got all these other deities, we've got all these, like, I need my good luck charm, I need, and I need to, like, kind of placate, if I'm going to go on a long journey, I've got to placate all the gods, because there's a god of the sun, there's a god of the moon, there's a god of the land, there's a god of the journey, and I've got to make sure that I offer sacrifices, and Colossians, Paul writes Colossians to them to say, look, I don't know about what all these other gods are, but Jesus is above all. Colossians is a great book because it reminds me, it reminds me of um, when I was doing junior high ministry up in San Mateo, and I've told this story before, but we had a young man, and his name was Josh Cabezas, and every time I would ask him a question in Sunday school, no matter what the question was, Josh would always answer the same way. Jesus, God, the Bible, 
Like before I ever answered, before I ever, he was like so ready. He was like, it was like, you know, assume the position, right? You're like, he knows. He knew what I was going to, whatever I was going to ask, one of those three was going to fit, right? Jesus, God, but, I, but Colossians would love Josh. Or maybe another kid in Sunday school who you ask, maybe you've had in Sunday school, you're like, okay, what's big, swims in the ocean, and swallowed the prophet Jonah? And maybe in Sunday school, a young man might say, well, I would have said a whale, but this is Sunday school, so I'm going with Jesus, right? Okay, Colossians, even though that's simplistic, Colossians would love that simplicity, that there is a sense in which Jesus is the ultimate answer to those questions. And this hymn really points us to that sense of the preeminence of Jesus. And so, to obey the command of the Apostle Paul, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we today are going to speak to one another with a hymn. And that is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So if you're not there already, let's open it up there. And let's just start to read through it. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read through it. And as I do, I'll explain it. And what we want to do today is we just want to, we want to center, we want to refocus. These hymns are so Jesus-centric, and it helps us as we walk out of this building, we don't have a Jesus-centric society, do we? Like, there's, how many times are you, like, going through your day, you're like, oh, i got to remember Jesus, Right? Like, oh, and maybe there's some days where you get to the end of your day, like, oh my gosh, I haven't thought about Jesus all day long. And the great thing is, like Connor was saying, like God always rejoices when you come to him because, but he's paid the price so that you can. But we need these times to like recenter, to recome together. And that's what these hymns were for, for the early church. So Colossians 1, 15, you guys with me this morning? I'm pumped up. I'm actually a little bit sleep deprived. I had to do a little bit of traveling this weekend, and um, but I, I'm I'm here, so my, I'm trending up on my number, um, my my energy number. So we don't allow anybody to say that they're at a seven. So um, I'm going to skip right over seven today. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. Colossians 1:15. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And here's where we, we get that Paul is, in a very Jewish sense, Jewish context, that in Jewish thought, the idea that God is invisible. And because of that, the second commandment for, forbids any humans making a likeness or an image of God from any graven images, like, like the, the golden calf. That was, a, that was an image, and, and God was like, no, you can't make, even if, it's a, even if a bull is powerful, you can't make an image out of me to celebrate my power out of a bull. You can't do that. And this idea, no human uh, is able to design an image that can completely display who God is in his totality. What this passage says is that it says that Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Your, your Bible probably says image of the invisible God. The word in Greek is the word icon. He is the icon of the invisible God. And the word icon is meant to be a revelatory term. That it is, that an icon, it, it's a little bit um, nuanced from an image. It's an icon. It's something that reveals who God is. And what Paul says is that Jesus present is the re revelation of who God is. The invisible God of the Jews is visible in the person of Jesus. And so when you are looking at Jesus, you are seeing God. 
God is revealed in Jesus. And this is important for us because if we wonder what is God like, what is he like, we could have all kinds of ideas in our head what the earliest followers of Jesus and the followers of Yahweh would say is that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. And that's significant because sometimes we think, because when we see Jesus in his earthly form, it's not super triumphant, is it? It's this, it's this mix of authority and compassion. It's not like this on high thunderbolt, like you, you blew it, boom, you know, like that. It's not, that's not what it is. And so if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how God deals with people, you look at Jesus. He's the icon. He's the revelation of who God is. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, you take a good, long look at Jesus. And if you've come to faith recently, and you, I would just say spend some time in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, because they talk about who Jesus is is. It's one of those things. If you feel a little bit disconnected from God, I would say go to the Gospels. Go to the Gospels. Jesus is revealing what God is like. He's the image of the invisible God. It also says in this passage, he is the firstborn of all creation. And this might lose a little bit of uh, what it originally meant in the first century, now 2,000 years later. When you hear the word firstborn, what do you think of? Your oldest son, your oldest daughter, the first one out of the womb. I don't know however you want to put it, right? Like our firstborn is our son Wesley. He's our oldest, right? You think of your oldest child and then, you know, all this, you know, then call the therapist for all the different things that, uh, that have gone on among birth order in your children and why you behave as you do. No laughing on that. That's okay. Scratch that joke from second service. Okay, but that's the idea. Um, we think of the firstborn as the firstborn out of the womb. And sometimes when we think about that and we hear this, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, there have been some in the history of Christianity that have said, well, that means that Jesus is the first created being. Now, if that sounds a little weird to your ears, is because that's actually what we call, uh, historically speaking, a heresy. Okay, that we, we the, the, and, and here's why, here's why. The term firstborn is the, it's the term prototokos in Greek, um, bekor in Hebrew, but it doesn't necessarily imply that it's the oldest son. As a matter of fact, when, when Joseph is blessing his children, he passes over the blessing of the firstborn, he passes over Reuben, and he actually gives it to one of the sons of Joseph, the younger son of Joseph, and that this younger son of Joseph is going to be the prototokos, the firstborn, and what it meant is that he was going to be the family authority and representative. That the firstborn, this term is that the first, anyone who was a firstborn in a family would have been not necessarily the eldest, but the one who was going to be counted on to represent the family and have the authority of the family name. And so Jesus, far from being, he is, he, the idea is that Jesus has all the attributes of deity. That includes being self-existent, that eternal. There's no beginning of Jesus. Just like we think about God, he has no beginning and no end. Now, we're, we're eternal in the sense that we, have, we will live forever if we put our faith in Jesus, right? But we have a beginning, right? But Jesus is eternal. There's no beginning. He's pre-existent and self-existent. He, does not re- he doesn't rely on any other thing or being for his existence. 
That's an attribute of God, and we would say that. So the idea that to say Jesus is the first created being would imply that Jesus had a beginning and that he's reliant on maybe the creation by the Father to create him. And that's not what this passage is saying. That's actually, it's, it's what's called, little geek mode here, it's what's called dynamic monarchianism in theological circles. I know you all wanted to know that. Um, it's also what is called, um, an Ar- it's called Arianism. It's also um, ba- the teaching, like today, teachings of like Jehovah's Witnesses or Latter-day Saints would hold to that view of who Jesus is, the first created being. And this is one of the reasons why, again, the, uh, geek mode, and I, apolog- I don't apologize, but you know, sometimes this goes better in a podcast than it does from the pulpit. But this is the idea that we, have to under- we understand that the earliest followers of Jesus who saw him and knew him best, they believed that when you looked at Jesus, you looked at God and all of the attributes of who God is, including not only his pre-existence before he is born, but his self-existence, that he's not reliant on any other thing or being for his existence. Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Unlike us, who has a beginning, but if we have faith in Jesus, no end. So you get the, that, that's, it's a nuance, but it's an important, it's important that it, Jesus is not just powerful he's all powerful that he's equal that there's a father son holy spirit all three are the same substance of the same power eternality Uh, you get the idea are we all together on this i could go on but look again let's downshift out of geek mode and let's get back to our passage so he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation and what this means So what does it mean that he's firstborn of all creation? It doesn't mean that he's created. It means this. If he is the firstborn of all creation, he's the first, he has authority over all creation. I would go go on to say, he has unique authority over all creation. Preeminent authority over all creation. There's all kind of authority out there right? There's all kind of authority. But where does the buck stop? Who has preeminent, uniquely preeminent authority? That's Jesus. Where's Josh Cabeza when you need him, right? Jesus. Jesus. And it's beautiful. So he is the uniquely empowered representative of the Father, possessing the authority of deity because he shares that substance of deity. The firstborn of all creation means the sole authority bearer over all created things. Just, like, just let that sink in for a second. Like, and just move to worship for a second. Jesus, you have sole authority over all things. Everything. Oh, Jesus, worthy. You're so worthy. Like that, and this, a hymn, like this, information, theology, it's meant to push us. It's meant to push us to worship. And I think as we hear this and as we reflect on it, there are things that start to resonate with us. If you put your faith in Jesus and we start talking about how awesome Jesus is, like, it's like, it's like, it's like yelling into a guitar. The strings start to resonate. Like you yell into a piano and the, the sound waves from you, it starts to, all, the, all those sound waves start to bounce around and hit the strings. Like when we hear this, it's like it's saying these things into us and we start to feel like the resonance of that, right? Like we hear Jesus has soul authority and we're like, yeah, 
Yes, yes, that's, that's the intent of a hymn, that it would resonate with us, and it would remind us, it would ground us in that way. All right, I'm only one verse into the hymn, so i got to keep going, okay? But this first line is just so full of such important things. So he, he's, he is, uh, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Look at verse 16. Why, is, why does he have authority over all creation? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's the firstborn. Why is he the firstborn? Why does he have authority over all? Because he created all. And this is where if you're Jewish and you're looking like, hey, in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 1 when I read who's the creator of all things, it's God. And now we're talking about who Jesus created all things. And you've got to put these two things together and say, look, we believe that this man Jesus is God, that he created all things, that he was there in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the, the gospel of John, does, he, they say that, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That in the beginning, Jesus was. He created all things. And all these things, it says, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, thrones, dominion, rulers, authorities. We heard, that, we heard kind of this catalog, didn't we, when we went through uh, Ephesians? This idea of thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. We, it talked about that there are the, there, at this point, even if Jesus did create power and he created authority, that we live in a time now where power and authority has been usurped. That we live in a world that's fallen. And we have this, what, what we call this interlocking directorate of powers, of anti-God and anti-human powers. The, the fallenness of creation, uh, the, the dark forces, the dark unseen forces of this world. You might even add to that the dark um, invisible forces of just uh, of market and, um, and, and maybe sy- systems that work against human thriving. But you also have the sons of disobedience that have turned their back on God and are now working for their own means in this world. And whether we like to admit it or not, like we're part of this interlocking directorate because I have dark ideas in my own heart. The, my fallenness has affected me. And other people's fallenness has affected me. And my fallenness has affected other people. I don't have to explain that to you because we've all experienced that, haven't we? Even if, you haven't believed, even if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I think we can all agree I, there's something deeply wrong with this world. You don't have to believe in Jesus to believe that, that you have been wronged by people or that you have dark thoughts. And we have somehow participated in this whole interlocking directorate. And what we find out is that though at one point these were all under Jesus' control, they have all moved out of, they, they've re- rebelled against him and usurped that authority. They said, I would rather not work for Jesus anymore. I would rather simply work for my own ends. And this hymn is here to remind us Jesus created those powers and Jesus will one day make all things right on earth and in heaven visible and invisible, any throne, any dominion, any power, any principality, Jesus is Lord. He created them. He created them. As we say to our kids, we brought you into this world, we can take you out. 
right? And that's what Jesus says to these thrones and dominions that might be working against him, but he one day will bring them all into alignment under the authority of himself. All right, verse 17, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And here's a reminder that as much as we break down the statements about Jesus, um, we're kind of launched into our own imaginations that when we talk about he is before all things, like, okay, he was incarnate, he was born of a virgin, but he, was, he existed before that. Okay, so what did Jesus, what was he in his pre-incarnate state? And not only that, like, let's go back even further, like, before anything was ever created, Jesus existed. Like somebody, the, the best scientific minds say that our universe, the universe, not just our solar system, but the universe, is expanding six inches a second. Have you guys heard this before? Okay, the, the universe is expanding six inches a second. And I'm, my thought is like, expanding into what? Like the universe space is expanding? Like what else, what's beyond that? And this is where like my, you're, you start to like sputter, you don't know what to do. Like we have to use our imaginations, we don't know. If Jesus is before all things, our imaginations, like we say, okay, what is that like? And even if I don't know what it is, uh, we, we start talking about Jesus, it's blurring, it's, it's, it's uh, mind-blowing. Like even we get down to the idea like what is the color green? Or you say, like, what is water? Why is water, water? Why is love, love? Right? And, and how is it that I have no idea how those things really work, and yet I can recognize them so easily when I see them? Like, how do I know? How does all this work? And you start to realize, like, Jesus has done this. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's not only powerful, but he's good. And he's not only good, he's beautiful. Let me say that again. He's not only powerful, and this is important, not only powerful, but he's good. And he's not only good, he's beautiful. And the earliest followers of Jesus began to reflect on him and see a power and majesty and beauty, and they were glad to have been caught in such authority and to live in such a way that would come under that authority. You think about, like, how, how can we come under the authority? It's so hard for us to come under authority, right? Like, we, we buckle at it, right? Like, I don't, want, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Okay, I'm just talking about me. You guys are fine. You're easy with that. Like, nobody else has that problem. But when we start thinking that these earliest followers of Jesus were like, I'm glad to come under that authority because I've seen the beauty of it. I've seen the goodness of it. And that, at that point in verse 17, we come to kind of the end of what would be the first verse of this hymn. And we move into, kind of, into the second verse. And as we move into the second verse of this hymn, we, we start to see a shift a shift from what, what uh, many scholars would call this first half, the cosmic 
Jesus or the cosmic Christ, the universal Christ, this idea of like before all things, like no time has no authority over him. Space has no authority over him. He's everywhere, all these things. And now, now the hymn writer, whether this is Paul or not or whether Paul is using this, he's now going to go, okay, that's universal, that's cosmic, but now we're going to go local. Now we're going to bring Jesus here. We're going to talk about Jesus here. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And as much as Jesus exists before time, is the creator of all things, the hymn writer is saying, but Jesus has come here locally, to my place. And the second verse is going to make this point. He'll take the first place in the spiritual realms, but he'll also take first place in the church. And in every human endeavor. The cosmic universal ruler of all things, but his blood will be spilled in a time and place. He'll even have blood to spill. He will be localized. And it says that he's the beginning, the first place. And this idea, the word, the word beginning, the, um, he's the beginning, it also implies that he's the head or he's the source. He's the ruler. He's the first place. And the, the church, he has authority over the heavens, but he also has authority over the church locally, then and now. It also says in verse 18 that he is the firstborn from the dead, and that, again, that doesn't, firstborn, doesn't mean that he's the first person raised from the dead, like Lazarus was raised from the dead, the guy who they threw Elijah's body on, those bones came to life, right? That, that it's not, he's not the first one raised from the dead, but he has authority over all death. He's the firstborn from the dead. The resurrection to, to life and the death of Jesus. This implies the same Jesus who created all things, also came locally and died and was raised to life. Jesus has authority over life and death. Again, let me say that again. Let's, let's let this sink in. Who has authority over life and death? Josh Cabasis is here in the building. That's right. In our culture, I mean, we can talk about, look, you look at armies rolling across borders and launching missiles, and who has the power over life and death? Like, bombs will come, and they are very powerful. Doctors are super smart, and doctors can help, and we love doctors. That's a great, that smart, God has made smart people to do awesome things for human thriving. It's common grace. That's from the Lord. But doctors do not have the power over life and death. Leaders do not have the power over life and death. Armies do not have the power over life and death. Look, Jesus has the power over life and death. And the hymn, the hymn writer is saying, look, we, we got to let this come in and resonate. And I got to think about like, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about life and death. I'm worried about sickness. I'm worried about illness. And the hymn writer says, he is the firstborn from the dead. He has authority over 
death. One nineteen. for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This, this verse, the word dwell, just dwell, okay? The word dwell, in Hebrew thought, when someone shows up, in, when someone shows up in a place and they build a house and they plant crops and they make a life for themselves in a place, it's this Hebrew word yashav, it's, it's to, it's to dwell, and it's translated as to dwell. And we hear it, we hear it all the time in, re, in relation to Jesus, and it's this idea that, and in the Old Testament you hear about this idea that Yahweh will dwell with his people. And the, this idea here is that Jesus, that God was pleased To come and build a house, plant crops, and dwell. To be with his people. And not just part. This is the thing. It's not like, well, I'm going to throw him a little bone, and I'm going to give him a little bit of my presence. No. God was pleased. It wasn't like he, was, he had to be finagled for this. He was pleased for the fullness of God to dwell to dwell, to just come and set up shop, set up camp, build a place of residence. Jesus came to dwell. He didn't come to visit. Sometimes I think we think about Jesus. Jesus just came to visit. He was a visitor. He was, you know, he's like the great uncle. Like he came to rile the kids up and then he's out of here, right? Jesus isn't, Jesus came not to just visit, he came to dwell. That the fullness of God in Jesus, and now his spirit is present, there is a fullness of God. It's not partial, it's full. And that God wasn't cajoled into it, God was like, yes! Yes! Oh, that pumps me up. That God would, God is pleased that Jesus would be present with us, present with you. That it pleases him. Sometimes we just got to slow down and just rest in these things, right? We need to give them a chance to resonate in us. I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like God is not pleased with me. And certainly there are things that I, that I, I do. I mean, I do my self-reports up here. Like one visit to Trader Joe's and I'm off the wagon, right? You've heard my self-reports. Or, but even darker things about my own, my own self, my own pride, my own issues on the freeway with people. Like, come on, like we all, people are bad news, everybody. And I've got opinions, right? Like the darkness of my own soul that sometimes I think, oh, can I go to God? Can I go to God? And what God says is, look, Craig, I made a way and I wasn't cajoled into it. I was pleased to do it. And I think sometimes we have, to, we have to let that truth sink in because sometimes we come to God and we're like, God, how can I even come to you? How can I even come to you? And what this hymn is reminding us is that God was pleased to dwell. He was pleased to make a way. He's pleased to come. And you'll hear it from the stage that when you come, God rejoices that you come no matter how forgetful you have been of him. He is pleased that you come. 
Your faith in Jesus has made it so that the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed onto you. I mean, not talk about getting in the weeds, but this is the idea that when he sees you, he sees his son. He was pleased to do it that way. It was his idea. It was his idea. And so no matter how much you feel like, ah, how can I go? The Spirit is always saying, let's go, let's go, let's go together. Let's go, let's go, let's go. We can, it's okay. God rejoices that you come. And certainly as you come, you, you might come confessing, or you might come, you might come with feelings of shame, but, but God will come and he will say, I was pleased to remove your shame. I was pleased to take your sins away. As far as the east is from the west, I was pleased to do that. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.20 And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the hymn concludes, it begins with this, like, he is before all things, he's the firstborn of all creation, like, it's just this huge out there, but then it ends with this idea, at a certain time, at a certain place, in a certain country, on a certain hill, Jesus bled and died. And by doing so, he made peace. I don't know how exactly. We have thoughts in, in the scriptures. There's, there's different ways that we might understand that transaction, it's just, but it's still this great mystery. But he made peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus cosmic and universal, but Jesus dwelling locally and near. You know, as we kind of wrap this up, I mean, this hymn, I, I really hope that it, even this week that you'll just kind of let this hymn sink in. It's even a good one. It's, it's only five verses to, to memorize, to kind of bring in, to let kind of sit in your soul. Um, and as we speak to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, um, these are all very grand images of Jesus. And we know that Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And certainly we could be nodding our heads to these things. At the same time, as followers of Christ, we all know that the world that we live in is a vastly different place than the world that Jesus walked in, right? Like, in 2,000 years, there's been a lot of technological developments, there's been a lot of changes, there's been a lot of different, a lot of buildings look different, transportation looks different, things unimaginable 2,000 years ago are part of our daily lives. Like you have, you have a computer in your pocket and only 50 years ago, that same computer took up the whole bottom floor of the IBM building in Manhattan, right? And even before that, it was unimaginable. Computers, instant messaging, texting, nuclear power, space stations... And add to this, that as much as we read this hymn, we talk about the, the authority of Jesus, that our experience of the world often does not match the ideals of God's creation. That we live in a world where we don't experience the ideals. 
We don't ex- that there are times when the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. What the heck? Like we, exp- we live in a world where we do not experience the goodness of God oftentimes. We might hear about it in here, but we go out and it is elusive to us at times. Sometimes for months, even sometimes for years that people struggle with, where am I seeing the goodness of God? It's like, you know, sometimes you go whale watching. Everybody been out whale watching? So, yeah, you go out whale watching and like, you're like, what, how, how was it? Like, we didn't see a whale the whole time. Or like you're out there and, and then all of a sudden it's like, Psh! and you're like, oh, there's one, there's one. And sometimes that feels like the way God is. Like you're looking, you're looking, you're like, oh, there's God. But sometimes you just go for long seasons where you're like, where the heck, where are you? And our experience of this world doesn't match. It sometimes doesn't match the hymn, does it? And that's okay. That's why the Psalms exist. That's why that's here. And that's why this, this is here. But, but our experience of the world doesn't often match this. And one boy in Sunday school asked, you know, if Jesus came back today, would he be able to understand computers? Or maybe you could add to this, like, if Jesus came back today, could Jesus drive a stick shift? Or if Jesus came back today, would he be able to write a text on a mobile phone? You know, I don't know how fat his fingers would be. And I think that, that questions like that recognize that we, we live in a world in which it's different from the world that Jesus knew. And his question and ours, it expresses this hidden fear, and this is the truth. It expresses this hidden fear that Jesus today might be overwhelmed or lost in our modern world. Look, there are powerful forces at work. There are powerful forces at work in our world. And what this hymn does is it reminds us in a world in which we do not often experience the goodness of God, in which we can go for seasons, for months, sometimes for years, without maybe recognizing the goodness of God. But Jesus created all things. Do you know how you got here? See, because when a mommy and a daddy... I'm just kidding. Okay, but here's the idea. All of your genetic information, everything that makes you kind of who you are genetically, it comes from that one sperm, right? Sperm and egg. And you can put on on a tip of a pin 10,000 sperm. All of your genetic information, all of your DNA, what color hair you have, what color eyes you have, how tall you're going to be, all of that genetic information is on one one-ten-thousandth of the head of a pin. I think Jesus could work my cell phone. Jesus did that. I think Jesus could figure out first, second, and third, fourth gear. I don't think Jesus would have to drive an automatic. He could do it. He understands. He knows. He did that. He created that whole mechanism. He holds that whole mechanism together. We're afraid that Jesus would be overwhelmed by my medical condition. We're afraid that Jesus doesn't understand the housing market. We're afraid that he doesn't understand the intricacies of my broken marriage. 
Or worse yet, he understands, but he has no opinion about it. Or worse yet, we might think that he understands and has an opinion about it, but will not act on my behalf. These are real fears. These are real fears in our experience of the world. But let me say this. And I remember teaching this, and we'll have a chance to do this with our Israel trip that's coming up in September. You go to the Mount of Olives and you look out on the city of Jerusalem, and it's, cra- it's crazy. When you go to Israel, on, on that spot, it's like you're in an Arab neighborhood, and there's a guy having, wanting you to ride a donkey, and there's a guy over here that's selling something, and there's people everywhere, and you look down, and it's like there's planes, and there's cars, and there's all this stuff, and there's Jews, and Christians, and Arabs, and it's just, it's crazy. And you stand there, and I remember teaching this, and I just want to say this to you guys. No matter what your fears are, Jesus will not be overwhelmed by anything. By anything. Jesus will not be overwhelmed. When he came the first time, he offered himself, and it certainly it looked like he was being overwhelmed by the Romans. He was, it looked like he was being overwhelmed by the Jews, but he was accomplishing something that was universally significant for all time, for you and I. He was doing something. It looked like he was being overwhelmed, but Jesus will not be overwhelmed by anything, and the first followers knew that, and they bet their lives on it. And they, in their times, their hardest times, their darkest times, they went back to the hymns to say, Jesus will not be overwhelmed by anything. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the creator, the creator incarnate, the creator incarnate willing to spill his own blood for your situation. He will not be overwhelmed. And as we come here today to be reminded of that, I don't, know, I don't know what's on your mind, and I don't know the dissonance of, I know I believe God is good, but I'm experiencing this. This hymn is God's message to us today to say, I'm still on the throne. I still have an opinion about this, and I will indeed act on your behalf It might not be the way you think it will be, but I will indeed love you as deeply as I possibly can. Let's pray.